0: There was a preacher in the 19th century in Scandinavia who heard that the king was coming to visit their church that Sunday for worship. And so that got him rattled. I mean, the king of his country was coming to worship with them. And so he threw out his well-prepared sermon and he spoke on and on that day about the Christian virtues that their king had. And even though the king said nothing after worship, the preacher couldn't help himself but wonder if he would... some sort of reward for uh, building up the, the king so much. And sure enough, uh, soon afterwards, a large crate arrived at the church building. And immediately the preacher concluded that this was his uh, reward that had arrived. And so he prized open this crate uh, only to find a life-size crucifix. Well, the preacher's disappointment was couldn't be contained. He says, we've already got lots of crucifixes, he thought. And then he looked inside the crate and he saw a note from the king with the royal symbol on it that explained exactly where the placement of this crucifix was to be in the church building. It was to be on the very back wall so that the preacher would see it and remember which king he was supposed to be preaching about at all times. Not the king of their country, but the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Friends, today, as we turn our hearts and our minds towards Christmas, I want us to really focus on why we celebrate Christmas in the first place. We celebrate Christmas because the King of Kings was coming. And so today, I want us to take a look at why the King of Kings had to come in the first place. So we're going to kind of jump around in scripture, but we're going to start in Matthew chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, if you would open them up to Matthew chapter 2, we're going to be in verse 1 there. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. It's kind of on the right side of your Bible if you're looking for it. But we're going to start there in Matthew chapter 2, and then we'll go to the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis, and we'll go through the Old Testament a little bit and end in the book of Romans today. But Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 is where we're going to start we see here in these first couple of verses that the Magi come looking for the king. And it says in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi came from the east to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, friends, honestly, we don't know a lot about these magi. Um, We don't know a lot about them. The Greek word that we have here in Matthew is the word magos, and it means wise man. It means uh, a priest, or it could mean a sorcerer. (laughs) They were probably wealthy, educated men, Um, They may have even been students of astronomy, which is why they would recognize a new star that was coming up. Um, You know, in our Christmas song, we say that they were kings, that there were three of them, but we don't get that from Scripture. (laughs) That song probably is wrong. (laughs) But neither um, neither of these uh, do we get from Scripture. Matthew is the only account of these magi, and all we really know about them is that they were from the east. So what is east of Jerusalem? Well, a lot of stuff. (laughs) India, China. um, More than likely, though, they were probably from Babylon, Persia, which is modern-day Iran. We don't really know, though. And we say that there are three of them because of the gifts that they brought. They brought three different types of gifts. But all, all, for all we know, there could have been 20 of them. There was enough of them that came that they disrupted not only Herod, but they disrupted all of Jerusalem for sure. How did they know that this star that had come up in the sky was a sign that there was a newborn king? Well, we don't know that either. <laughs> it could have been that God had given them a dream like he will do later on to warn them about going back to King Herod. But we don't know how they knew that this star meant that a king of the Jews had been born. But what we do know is that these magi came looking for. They came looking for a king. Now, Matthew opens up his gospel, if you turn back a page with the genealogy of Jesus. And oftentimes we look at these lists of names, of of names that we can't pronounce, and we think, man, I just got to push through this so I can get to the main point. But there's a reason that Matthew gave us this genealogy, and he tells us there in verse one of Matthew. He says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, And then in verse 17, at the end of this genealogy, he says, Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile of Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. So Matthew's point in giving us the genealogy of Jesus is to show us how Jesus is related to directly from David and from Abraham. Now, today we're going to look at why that's important. Matthew is pointing us to Jesus being a fulfillment of promises that God made both to Abraham and to David. He's pointing us to the truth that Jesus is the rightful, promised king. Matthew is telling us that the king is coming. But why in the world Does the king need to come in the first place? Well, that's what I want to explore today. In order for us to see why the king needed to come in the first place, we need to go back to the beginning, the very beginning, back to the garden. From the beginning of time, God was king over everything. He ruled over everything. In fact, Genesis chapter one tells us that God created everything and that everything was good. God was the ultimate authority. He was the ultimate ruler over all creation, over all all the galaxies, all the universe. Everything that was created was under his authority. God was king. God was king of all creation. And then God gave some limited authority over to humans to have authority over animals and plants. We were to be stewards of the king. We were to be stewards of God who is the king. Now that word steward isn't something that we use except in church often, right? Not in our culture. God made us managers over God's creation, right? We are to manage it God's way. But then, just a couple of chapters later, chapter 3, verse 5, mankind is tempted in the same way that mankind has been tempted ever since. Adam and Eve are tempted to become kings and queens in God's place. The serpent tells Adam and Eve this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 5. He said, for God knows that when you eat of it, Your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Friends, I would venture to say that this is the core to every single temptation that we face. The temptation is that we know better than God and that we want to be in his place. God had given Adam and Eve the authority over many different things. And he'd also given them freedom to eat from any plant that they want with one restriction. God gave them to not eat from the tree of knowledge or with this warning, you will surely die. And so Satan tempts them to to become kings and queens in God's place. He says, God doesn't want what's best for you. God wants you to keep you from being like him. And so after Adam and Eve sinned, they were cast out of the garden. This perfect place where God ruled, where all was right with the world. They were cast off to live as kings and queens of their lives with all the consequences thereof. By the sweat of their brow, by pain and toil and death being brought into the world because of their rebellion against the king, just as God warned them it would be. But God, even in this moment of their rebellion, puts his plan into action to become king once more. And in verse 15, God tells the serpent this in Genesis 3. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Friends, the Bible calls rebellion against God, sin. And when Adam and Eve sinned, they dropped the atomic bomb of sin in the midst of God's good creation. Man destroyed what God had made perfect and suffering and pain and death have followed. But God warned Satan right then and there in the aftermath of this rebellion that God would become king once again. That the offspring of woman would crush his head. This was the first promise of the coming king, but it wouldn't be the last. We go a little bit further down the line. And the further that mankind gets from God's kingship, the worse things get. In fact, they get so bad that God ends up wiping out everyone on the earth with a worldwide flood because of sin except for one family. And it would be through that family, Noah and his family, that God would give the next promise is actually to Noah's descendant, a man that we've already mentioned this morning, Abraham. To Abraham, one of Noah's descendants, this is what God promises. And it's found in Genesis chapter 17. In verse six, he says, I will make you very fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God, the God of your descendants after you. And then what we have in the rest of the book of Genesis is God preparing his people for a time when he would become king once more. And then the next book in Exodus opens up And it's 400 years later, and the Israelites are in Egypt and now in slavery to the Egyptians. And so God comes and rescues the Israelites from that slavery, and they wander in the wilderness for 40 years because Israel wasn't ready yet to... Release the throne of their hearts to God once again. And so he allows them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. God had taken Israel out of Egypt, but it took 40 years for Egypt to get out of Israel. So finally, after these 40 years, the people finally are prepared to enter into the promised land, to enter into the land where God would sit on the throne and rule as king once again. And so Moses retells the people of all that God had done from creation all the way through rescuing them from Egypt. And he reminds them of all the commands that God had given them, that God wants them to live under. Moses reminds Israel of how they are to live as God as their king in the promised land. And in Deuteronomy 6, he says this, these are the commands and the decrees and the laws that the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land where you are crossing, in the Jordan to possess. So that you and your children and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all of his decrees and his commands and that I give you and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey, so that it may go well with you, and that you may increase greatly in the land flowing of milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors promised. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So what we see after this is Israel go and clear the land of Israel and God reigned as king over Israel for an extended period of time. But even after all God had done for Israel, the people of Israel turned their backs on God again. And they rebel against God once more. They rebel against his kingship once again. And so God had established judges and priests to lead his people under his authority. And we see that through the rest of Joshua and Judges. And then we have the book of 1 Samuel, and it opens up with the people rejecting God's kingship and God's plan once again. And they come to Samuel, who was the high priest and the representative of God, and they say, we want to have a king like the rest of the nations. And Samuel comes to God, and he pours out his heart, thinking that they had rejected him as their leader. And God says, nuh-uh, listen to this. In First Samuel chapter 8, he says, listen to all the people are saying to you, it is not you, Samuel, that they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. Israel, once again, had rejected God for being king over them. But God's plan wasn't finished. God had a plan to become not just king over Israel, but to become king of kings and Lord of lords over all creation, once again, for all eternity. So after Israel rejected God as their king, they set up Saul as their first king, followed by David. But then God makes another promise to David, a promise about the coming king of kings. And David shares this promise as he is getting ready to appoint his son Solomon to be the next king in line and to charge him to build the temple and in 1 Chronicles twenty-eight four, David shares this with Samuel and the rest of the people and says, Yet the Lord, the God of Israel, chose me from my whole family to be king over Israel forever. Now, David wasn't saying that he was going to live forever. In fact, Peter will tell us on the day of Pentecost that David was pointing towards Jesus. David wasn't saying that he was going to live forever, but that through his family, the coming king of kings would come. And then what we see in the rest of the Old Testament is that many of David's descendants after him would rule as as kings and most of them weren't so good. And they would lead the people astray. And what we see over and over again is the people were back and forth with following God and not following God, most of the time not following him. And then the two kingdoms split into the northern and the southern and they're carried off into exile. And then even at the end of the Old Testament, they, a remnant of, of, of Israel comes back to Jerusalem and they rebuild the temple wall, they rebuild the rebuild temple, and they rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And what we have at the end of the Old Testament is these people waiting and longing for God to be their king, as He promised, once again, they, they've rebuilt the temple and they're just waiting for Him to return. But what we would have is 400 years of silence, and a king that would come not in a way that they were expecting. The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John pick up where the Old Testament ends. After 400 years of silence, Matthew tells of the family line of Jesus, a descendant of Abraham and a descendant of David. He tells of the family line of the Messiah, Mark shares from the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Luke gives an account showing the evidence to Theophilus, how he can know the exact truth of the things that he had been taught, that Jesus is the son of God, the sent one of God, the Messiah, the rightful king. John opens up within the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and that there will be a new creation. And the parts of the gospel that we are really familiar with, the beginning and the end, Christmas and Easter, the in-between parts that we are a little less familiar with, is all about Jesus establishing God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. He is returning people back to God's authority as king. He begins to put back things into their rightful place, things that we have messed up, caring for the poor and the sick and the needy, teaching this new kingdom, this new way of living that had already begun, a kingdom where God was enthroned as king, not just of Israel, but over all who would believe in Jesus. In the beginning, God was king. But friends like Adam and Eve and like Israel, each and every one of us have rebelled against the rightful king. We have rebelled against God as king. And the Bible calls our rebellion sin. And that sin has disrupted God's authority. So the reason that Jesus had to come, the reason that the king was coming is because of our rebellion. Paul puts it like this in Romans chapter three. He says, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his uh, by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God um God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness. Because of his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Friends like Adam and Eve and like Israel, each and every one of us have sinned and rebelled against God's kingdom. We have rebelled against the king. Paul says all, and all means you, because all means me. We all have sinned. And for God to become king once again, our sin must be dealt with. Our sin must be atoned for. But you and I, we can't do this ourselves. Remember the garden? When we try to be kings and queens, it just brings more death and destruction. When we try to fix it ourselves, we end up just messing it up more. But God justifies us under his grace. Not that we've earned it, but despite the fact that we haven't. Jesus redeems us with his blood. Jesus is the one who is just. He is perfect. He is without sin. And he is also the one who justifies us freely by his own sacrifice. In Matthew chapter 1, when the angel comes to Joseph in a dream and tells him that Mary is going to be a mother and the child, he is to call Jesus. He says, you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus, the son of God, he invaded earth to crush our rebellion against the king. The king was coming to rescue us. The king was coming to save us from our sins. And this is why we celebrate Christmas. Because the king is coming. The Magi, they came looking for a king. But the question each one of us must answer for ourselves to God, is Jesus your king? Is Jesus your king? You, like me and everyone else, have sinned and rebelled against the king, but you can be saved. But you only can be saved by putting your trust and your faith in Jesus, by making him the king of your life. We make Jesus the king by putting our faith, putting our trust in him, by repenting of our sins, and then allowing Jesus to put our sin to death by meeting him in baptism. Paul tells us in Romans 6 that when we are baptized, we are buried with Jesus into his death, and that we are raised a new creation, Jesus becomes our king once again. Is Jesus your king? If not, won't you come today and make him your savior and your king? The king has come, but he's coming again. Will you come and join his kingdom today? This is the greatest Christmas gift Ever, we pray with me, Father. Thank you that you sent your Son Jesus to become King for all eternity, to crush our rebellion against you. For we know that we all have sinned and fall short of your glory, but Father, we all can be justified freely through the grace of your Son Jesus. Father, thank you. Thank you. Remind us that this is why we celebrate Christmas, not just this once time one time a year, but every single day, because the King of kings and the Lord of lords has come to claim his throne once again of our hearts and of all creation. Father, because we know that when you raised him from the dead, you raised him and seated him at your right hand. And you placed under him all authority in heaven and on earth. And so, Father, we celebrate today that the King has come. And we look forward to the day that the King will return again, and that we will spend eternity in your presence. Father, if there are those that are here listening to my voice this morning who have never made your son the king of their life, would you call them to yourself today? Would you lead them to repentance? Would you lead them to the waters of baptism so that they can make you the king of their life? For those of us who have, Father, would you use us as your witnesses, as your heralds to go before you and, and proclaim from the rooftops that your son has come and he is the king of kings. Father, we thank you for this reminder of Christmas to remind us of how you came to give the greatest gift of all, your son Jesus, as a sacrifice to atone for our sin. So Father, we ask all of this in his glorious name. Amen.